Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delvo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow with the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends. Giselle Donnelly, also from the American Enterprise Institute and... Yuria Joja with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University. On our podcast, we talk about many challenges to European peace and security that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Today, it's just the three of us. We're hoping to um, provide some sort of a reflection on what's been happening in Ukraine uh, over the past couple of days, really, as we are getting uh, close to our first 100 uh, days of this war and close to our 50th episode uh, on the on the on the Eastern Front. Uh, on the podcast, we had you know some high moments, some low moments. It looks like these past couple of days have, have we've seen many mixed messages coming from from Ukraine, whether uh, they have to do with Ukraine's international position, military aid, both from from European countries and from the United States, but also with regard to the to the actual fighting happening on the ground. So, so in the Donbass, it looks like uh, Russians are focusing on offensive operations targeting Severodonetsk. Uh, there has been a lot of destruction. It looks like there's the same playbook being pursued as in Mariupol, basically leveling the city to the ground. Uh, and, and and there was a distinct sort of feeling of pessimism that I, that I felt from some of the Ukraine watchers towards the end of last week. So I was hoping that Giselle, who is also very carefully tracking the, the military developments on the ground could could perhaps provide us with a sort of her, her sense of the of the big picture of, of, of where things are headed, where Russians might be likely to make breakthroughs and and what really are the sort of weakest links in the defense of Ukraine and, and the in the efforts to to push Russians out. Well, I'll, I'll do my best to challenge our uh, friends from the Institute for the Study of War and the Critical Th- Threats Project here, from whom I steal all my information, although not all of it. Um, but um, yes, there was kind of, a, 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 you know, a dip in the enthusiasm for Ukrainian prospects um, late in the week, last week, especially in regard to the Severodonetsk um, uh, battle, so to speak. Uh, however, it seems like the pendulum has swung back a bit the other way, mostly because, again, as a um, uh, critical threats reported fr- uh, on Friday, the Russians are paying a ridiculously high price for something that has very little, I mean, it's a a road junction, a railhead, and all the rest of that stuff, but um, it's not what you would call a massive, uh, you know, hugely important strategic location. Um, and it uh, probably and almost certainly isn't worth the cost that the Russians are are paying for it. The real problem with the overall Russian campaign plan is that it was under-resourced and too diffuse uh, from the start. So now it's concentrated, but in the meantime, 
I don't know, a third or more of Russia's combat power, and particularly things like tanks and fighting vehicles have just been destroyed. Um, also, manpower uh, is at a premium. So as you said, Dalibor, uh, they're uh, using heavy artillery uh, and and moving very slowly. The the rate of advance is you know more no more than a mile a day. So who knows whether the Russians are trying to get to a point where they can declare victory that they've secured all of the Luhansk Oblast. Um, you know, speculating about what the larger intent here is, uh, is always very difficult to do. But a breakthrough, this has not been. Uh, it's been a steady advance, a very expensive. I mean, I, I think the Ukrainians have uh, paid a price for the defense too, but this is an equation or, a, uh, you know, that increasingly favors uh, Ukraine uh, because R Russia has had to do things like pull old T-62 tanks out of mm. storage. The advantage there being uh, that they don't have modern electronics and hence are not subject to the uh, chip shortages that the, the Russians are, are suffering from. So it's a you know, it it does look like the Russians are trying to get to a point where they can de that can declare victory, hoping that uh, you know the Germans and the French and possibly even the Biden administration will put the squeeze on the Ukrainians to try to negotiate a, a ceasefire. But my God, the Russians are paying a huge price for it. What about the? the price that the Ukrainians are paying. So if we are, and I think it's safe at this moment to say that uh, after they, the Russians have adjusted their aims from demilitarization, denazification, the whole country, they have now said, or a while ago, they've now said they want to take the Donbass. And um, the way they are taking things is by destroying um, an area that is important in terms of industry for production for Ukraine's GDP in the end, and that if you destroy, it's not easy to rebuild. It actually takes decades. This is stuff that was built during the Soviet times um, and then privatized. So say um, the Russians are now successful at leveling Severodonetsk and they might keep it um, or they might lose it, but it is destroyed. What does that then mean for Ukraine? I think Zelensky over the last few days um, came out and said um, the Russians are basically completely leveling the Donbass and everything there is there. And, and I'll throw one more thing out there as we're looking into the summer and we know Ukraine keeps saying August, August, and people don't understand what that refers to. Maybe, Giselle, you can help us contextualize that. But there's another scenario in which, um, okay, the French and the Germans don't understand. Um, they don't, they're not on the same track with how we are assessing this war and wins and, lose, and losses. And they still think that they can negotiate a ceasefire. But if Russia this summer says, okay, we have taken, destroyed, taken, occupied, whatever, the entire Donbass, 
we're going to put, uh, um, we're going to impose a unilateral ceasefire and the conflict gets frozen. And the Ukrainians are telling me then it will be very, very hard to take back politically and in terms of military costs. Isn't that something that sidelines the Westerners and puts everyone on the spot and uh, kind of takes out a lot of um, cards that the Ukrainians might have? Before you answer that question, if I can just interject very briefly to give our listeners a sense of of the magnitude of the destruction in Severodonetsk. These are numbers from uh, the war bulletin issued by the by the Ukrainian government. So, so they say that in Severodonetsk, the entire city infrastructure, electricity, gas pipelines, mobile network, that's been all destroyed. Uh, 90% of the houses are either damaged or destroyed. And essentially two-thirds of the city's housing stock has been destroyed altogether. Just to sort of give people a sense of you know how what, what is left of 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 of, 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 of a city like that, and what it will mean for you know whoever gets to govern it. Uh, yeah, well, it's the village has been burned in order to be saved. I mean, so, so here's kind of a hypothetical. I, maybe y'all know more than than I do. I mean, I have this sort of picture of the Donbass as this old Soviet Rust Belt, heavy industrial, um, you know, sort of uh, Pittsburgh without the charm or something like that, or Allentown without the charm, uh, to make an American reference. And so how much is worth, I mean, this sounds, this is not going to come out the way I want it to sound, but... I can't imagine that simply rebuilding the Donbass as it was uh, would, you know, be the right kind of investment, uh, or you know, would not be economically, um, you know, the yeah. the best way to to reconstruct the Donbass if somebody were uh, to have to take on that task. The question is: Is it would it be possible for Ukraine to reconstruct itself as a viable, not just strategically but economically? You know, without this, what is now a wasteland, you know, sort of uh, something out of a you know post-industrial thriller movie. Um, um, so again let even granting if if ukraine could reclaim sovereignty over the donbass what would anybody do with it and particularly you know who would want to be lured back to the to the donbass uh after this kind of absolute destruction i mean that would be you know emotionally uh you know very powerful perhaps but um it's hard to imagine how one could make a life in that sort of industrial, industrially devastated moonscape almost. Yeah, but but they are losing between seven and ten billion a year in exports of industry by having the Donbass level. So before they reconstruct, that's just going to be cut off the 
the GDP, um, and all these people will be jobless. And well, who's left in the in the Donbass? Really, I mean, I could people loyal to the Ukrainian government have no doubt left or fled. Um, the two, you know, People's Republics hmm. are, are shambolic governments who don't, you know, or uh, there have been reports of uh, their militias refusing to fight and being treated as second-class citizens by the Russian army. I, I think there is something to be said about um, just the um, clash of sort of thinking that goes on on the Russian side and what you know, we in the West consider as mm-hmm. sort of you know worthwhile goals of 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 of, 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 an, of, a, of an offensive like this. I mean, for, for 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 the Russians, it seems that it doesn't really matter that they'll be taking over a moonscape and occupying a moonscape right. via you know criminal gangs. Having that um, sort of layer of like instability sort of wrapped around Russia. Like and 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 just just chaos and 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 crime, like it's not something that uh, necessarily uh, goes against these broader aims of the regime, right? As long as 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 those places do not really pose a direct challenge to the authority of the of the Kremlin, like it's not really about maximizing human welfare in those in those places. Notwithstanding, you know, the the sort of stuff that 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 Putin is feeding. You know the German Chancellor and the French President in these phone calls when he said, you know, when he informed them about the efforts to restore peaceful life and security and and so on and so forth in these in these liberated areas, so to speak. I mean, it, it and it's something I, I suppose many Westerners find very difficult to to get to wrap the, the 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 heads around that actually you can have a regime that is perfectly comfortable with. With just you know destroying things and then claiming them for 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 themselves, even though they will have of they will have no economic value or or will not sort of add to the stock of wealth and power or prestige of the of the regime. Let me try this. Let me try this one on you then. Um, so, I mean, I'm I'm more interested to try to see things through Ukrainian eyes and. So although they're tenaciously defending um, the Donbass and actually have, there were reports that there were counterattacks uh, to mm-hmm. some of the suburbs of uh, Sverdonetsk, they are, uh, and quite publicly have announced that they're making a big uh, thrust toward Kherson. So, you know, again, just in the allocation of military resources, it sort of sounds like the Ukrainians are telling us that there are other parts of their country that they value more highly. And I mean, you can understand, uh, you know, Kherson is a big port and all the rest of that stuff that's important to, you know, sort of have some, an alternative to Odessa in order to remain linked to the international economy, so on and so forth. So are the Ukrainians sort of, telling us that the purpose of the fighting in the Donbass, first and foremost, is to bleed the Russians. And mm-hmm. I think that plays also into what Yulia was saying about August, that 
they do anticipate that the Russians will have really shot their wad, um, you know, within mm -hmm. a couple of months, that they, they lack the ability to rearm and refit and replenish their forces. Uh, so, you know, I mean, and again, the, the Ukrainians have been the masters of strategy in this war and, and pretty patient in a way that not even the most, uh, you know, avid uh, supporters in the West uh, uh, have been. I, I'm just trying to try to connect the dots here mm. and, and see if there's a, a rationale that uh, the public commentary is overlooking. Yeah, um, I'd love to get a little bit into her song because that's the good part of the news. But but the, I want to um, throw a couple of things out there. So the other day I was having lunch with a friend who returned from Ukraine, um, uh, escaped during the war and now is back here and is pretty well plugged into um, the Ukrainian government and um, and their aims and all of that. And she kept making the point that everything in the Donbass, in the Kherson um, region, in um, in this war overall, operationally, really depends on Western weapons. Um, they are. They, um, I was asking her about Ukrainian strategy, where she sees the flaws, um, where she sees the pluses, and she was saying it's all dictated for by what we have and what we're waiting for. And then going into, I wonder if that makes sense, Giselle, kind of building onto, I think, what you were suggesting, and then building onto her son um, and what kind of trying to read what the Ukrainians are following when they're setting their strategic goals in this major restraint of, of weapons um, is also, I guess, the human humanitarian factor. Um, so we've seen the reports from from Ukraine, from them themselves that are generally pushing on the, um, focusing on critical infrastructure and the humanitarian aspect. And beyond the, the fears of annexation, what, what they're reporting, they're seeing in Kherson is a, a true push for that re-education, right? Um, that, uh, that teachers are being rounded up, forced, threatened, blackmailed um, to switch to the Russian education. And as nice as that sounds or as neutral as that, as that sounds, that means basically the war of the people and indoctrinating, indoctrinating kids with... Um, well, basically brainwashing them. So they're, they're concerned genuinely in, about that. And I wonder to what extent um, these rationales would fit into, Giselle, how you're understanding Ukrainian strategy, counteroffensive and defensive. Well, it, you know, it would take a, a long time to really indoctrinate um, a whole population, uh, I would think. And I can imagine that, at least for the near term, uh, the Ukrainian government would be fairly confident in its ability to reclaim the loyalty of the citizenry in the places that have been occupied. I mean, you know, uh, being a preferential choice to Russian governance uh, is probably a very low bar to, to get over. Um, you know, so the 
the Russians ability to really, you know, win hearts and minds in occupied Ukraine. I mean, it's not like they've even done a huge, great job in the Donbass. Again, we, we see the, you know, Russian, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, diminishment of any other peoples besides, uh, you know, hard, real ethnic Russians has been evident uh, in the grumpiness of the Donbass militias, uh, you know, who, you, you know, you wonder whether uh, they've become less enamored with their uh, cousins from Moscow or St. Petersburg than they were, um, you know, uh, in January, for example. So, I, I mean, I, I would imagine that the, that the Zelensky government would be fairly confident that whatever ground they can win back, um, uh, you know, assuming that uh, there's a, a serious program of reconstruction, that um, they'll be able to claim the allegiance of the, the citizenry. And the power of Ukrainian nationalism now is just, uh, you know, taking a, a, a giant step forward. Um, so, you know, the ability to reintegrate these places into um, an independent Ukraine strikes me as uh, something they should be optimistic about. Dalibor, what do you reckon? I, I, I suppose the, um, the only wrinkle to that is, um, well, first of all, the, you know, the mass abductions of Ukrainians into Russia and the extent of the destruction, which means that you have lots of displaced people who are necessarily fleeing, you know, in all directions, preferably towards, towards you know, the, the rest of Ukraine, per, to, to, to the rest. And in, 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 in the end, it might, we might end up in a situation in which, you know, Russians are controlling a pile of rubble and the Ukrainians are trying to push them out. Um, but doing so will require a lot of effort and a lot of costs to the Ukrainian side. And there won't be that much upside because yeah. you know there won't be people to be liberated by the Ukrainians. And I, I think in that in that situation, right. that unilateral ceasefire will 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 maybe become a sort of perversely palatable proposition because you know people will be able to credibly tell to Zelensky and maybe Zelensky himself will sort of you know accept that that well you know is it really worth fighting over this? Um, but then sort of end right. up first, first prize is Donetsk, second prize is Donetsk and Luhansk. Then sort of end up you know, just freezing the conflict and and maybe having you know the the the, 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 the conflict just restart on terms more favorable to Russia a few few years later. Well, a lot of people wonder about that. Um, I wonder, you know, how to rebuild the Russian military. Uh, in a way that, you know, it's hard for me to see how they could a achieve a greater advantage than they had in the initial invasion, unless they're going to seriously um, root out corruption in their economy and in their military industrial complex, that they're going to recruit and train professional soldiers, so on and so forth, um, that the um, 
various em embargoes, the technology embargoes uh, are lifted. I mean, we've seen a Russian army that's really third rate. Uh, and to get it to where it thought it was a uh, hundred days ago, even to return to that level of capacity and capability would be the effort of, of years. It would certainly, you know, I, I think this is uh, Putin's last bite of the apple. You know, he's almost 70 years old. Uh, he's not going to be in a position to, uh, to do much anytime soon, I wouldn't think. If he's not getting replaced by someone worse, two more things to throw out there. Um, so I also spend sleepless nights is an exaggeration, but I also worry like everybody else, what would happen with a ceasefire unilateral or not. But every time I talk to Ukrainians, what is a, a un, who, what is the unilateral ceasefire? I mean, without Ukrainian agreement, that there's no ceasefire. Well, a push from the Westerners and and then this the situation becoming politically very difficult when everybody's pointing fingers at Zelensky and saying you got to do that. Now, what what um, I've started understanding, and this is what Ukrainians are telling me as well, is as soon as Zelensky or anybody else will agree to one inch of a ceasefire, of a new line, he will fall. <laughs> because we've had to, they say, we've had two presidents that fell because of that. And the Ukrainians, I think Pomerantsev a while ago was pointing that out when he was with us, um, are an unruly bunch in, in a good way. Um, and you have now 80-something, 90% of the population who's not willing to give one inch. So the Russians can do a ceasefire, so to throw that out there, the Russians can do a ceasefire with Western backing or not. The Ukrainians will not respect that, but we might drain them of weapons. Um, and so then it becomes kind of a the tragedy of, of what can happen. And then the other thing to throw out there from the Russian side, apropos Putin and whoever might be next, um, if he doesn't stay in power, which is, of course, a big question, is how do Russians feel about that? Um, just earlier, I was talking to someone who's Armenian and has close family in Rostov. And, uh, and her family is telling her the following thing. They say, well, our prices went up only once at the beginning of the war, ever since they've been stable, unlike you in the West, <laughs> um, they say. And uh, and our pensions have just increased by 10-11%. Um, and sanctions do not scare us because in the 90s we lived off of black bread and sunflower seed oil. So what are you going to do to those people? And the vast majority of us, they say, are supporting the special military operation. So even if Putin falls, isn't there going to be the next one who will support kind of the monster that they've built um, with this um, with this kind of support for the conflict? And then it goes back to the Ukrainian tragedy and, you know, a war of attrition in the most attritious way we've ever seen, I guess. What army is, the, is this uh, Putin replacement? got to got to command i mean um the cupboard is bare or darn close to it 
Um, and I have to say, you know, I, I stand behind no one in their, uh, you know, uh, doubts about the willpower of the West. But to to bug out on Ukraine at this point for an America for President Biden, I think would be a very bad decision politically, both at home and for you know, his uh, standing in the world, which is still a little bit tenuous. Um, if, if we're seen to, to falter uh, in supporting the, the Ukrainians, uh, America's ability to revive NATO, to you know, assert its uh, strength in the Pacific uh, against the Chinese, you know, you can go on and on. This would be, I think, an even more fatal blow than the botched Afghanistan withdrawal. But I definitely agree with that, but it's not totally clear to me that Biden is the only agent in all of this. And we've had multiple conversations already about how um, the bipartisan support for Ukrainian army, Ukraine might be weakening over time. And, you know, the closer we get to the midterms, the closer we get to the presidential race, there might be forces in sort of domestic politics in the U.S. that will seek to move on and to sort of keep this momentum going uh, through which we just keep sending Ukrainians whatever it is that they need, like, that 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 might not be a permanent state of affairs. I mean, I think it's very much an open question whether we have or and and whether Europeans also have the stomach to to really stick with Ukraine it, for the for, it for is, the long but haul. The, but but standing up to Russia is one of the few things that Biden's got going for him. I mean, if he flinches, the support that he has from both the center right and center left to the degree that that still exists in American politics. Uh, you know, his, his backing depends on him being kind of uh, the leader of the free world. I mean, his domestic policy is a shambles. Um, he's spent like a drunken sailor on a whole host of, uh, uh, you know, government programs that have brought on or accelerated the inflationary uh pressures in uh, our economy, uh, you know, what else has Biden got going for him? So, so I definitely agree. He should be dreading a sort of Afghanistan 2.0 in terms of the withdrawal that happened last year. Uh, but is it, I mean, is it so unimaginable that you would have something like a unilateral ceasefire, you know, and, and some pressure by France, Germany to recreate Minsk to lift sanctions at that point? The administration will say, "Well, let's you know, let's let's go along with this. It's been a terrible war. Uh, we don't want this to go on forever." You and- know, Schultz and Macron can kind of flit around the edges of this. They can call Putin once a week. Uh, you know, they they can make sort of college level philosophical, uh, you know, reflections on war and well, peace. it was barely high school level, really. <laughs> <laughs> This is a chancellor. I'm trying to be generous. That was that was that was pretty amazing. Yeah, he, he would not have uh, 
It reminds me of my college uh, philosophy, you know, intro to philosophy classes. But you said earlier, if he flinches, didn't he flinch today, yesterday, when he said, uh, no long range missiles? I don't, I don't know. I mean, first of all, you know, Biden's going to defend Taiwan every other day. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a good one. Foolish consistency is not the hot. We've already sold them stuff that can hit Russia. I mean, Belgorod is like uh, 15 miles from the Ukrainian border. We've already sold them howitzers that could range that if they, you know, were 10 feet inside. So why does uh, why does he say that? Doesn't he have a lot to lose domestically too? You know, it's it's the mysteries of the Biden brain. <laughs> Well, no, it's the deep state, right? Like he wants to defend Taiwan, but he's being held. No, he's not going to give them weapons that can hit China. (laughs) Yeah, and first of all, this has always been like a rolling thing, right? So I'm not going to do this, and then he does it. Yeah, I'm not going to do this. World War Three. Yeah. Two days later, he does that. Um, No, I, I think that the logic of um, giving Ukraine what it needs is still pretty compelling for President Biden. He's again uh, the the uh, the ability to uh, cheese out on things should never be uh, undersold, but uh, just it, it strikes me as being. Uh, uh, r- ruining his one claim to presidential status. So before we wrap up, can we talk about the little win and that is Hairson? Because we didn't yes. really get it. We only we only complain. But Giselle, tell us what we what we have to look forward to and what is going on there in in your understanding and whether that has implications for the Southern um, counteroffensive, sort of right? Because we talked about we've basically yeah. seen. Looking on the map over the last three months, we've seen the offensive initially from Crimea, and then they got blocked, and then it was a back and forth, and then they basically over time got blocked. And now the Ukrainians are pushing against um, them in Kherson. Does that tell us more than just Kherson? It tells us that the Ukrainians are making uh, uh, a military choice. Um and I think we should see the Donbass a little bit as an economy of force posture from, from the Ukrainians. And because the Russians, first of all, the Russians took Kherson right at the get-go uh, without having to um, destroy too much or uh, without having to pay a huge price. And they have transferred a lot of their forces, not only from Kiev and uh, Kharkiv, you know, from the north, but also uh, from uh, the south, to to mount this desperate thrust uh, in the Donbass, and the Ukrainians quite cleverly and have said so out loud, uh, see a vulnerability in the in the Kherson defenses. They're kind of moving down the river, down the Dnipro. That's the um, uh, the the, the Biggest penetration, um, and you know, again, without I have not done like sort of a comprehensive analysis of what this could lead to and what the possibilities are, but it's also a key to 
um, further, uh, you know, were, were they able to, to get substantial forces on the east bank of the Dnipro, uh, then they could also hold the uh, so-called land bridge uh, mm-hmm. at risk. And there's also, you know, a substantial insurgency or, you know, irregular warfare going on in that corridor. So, again, um, hard to know how it'll turn out, but it's clear that that the Ukrainians are are making a strategic choice here and they're allocating forces uh, in in line with that. That would relieve the pressure on Odessa, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, you know, the, the whole connection between Crimea and the Donbass, uh, uh, would be at risk if they retook Kherson, got substantial forces across the river, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, w- I think that's probably a larger prize than, than, than um, what's being fought over and you know the, the wasteland that we described earlier in the Donbass. Um, before we wrap up, just one final question for you, Giselle. Um, somebody uh, suggested on Twitter, and I apologize to whoever it was, I don't recall the, the, the name anymore, um, that maybe the West should really draw a red line uh, at Odessa and and make sure that uh, Odessa really does not fall into Russian hands and that, that Ukraine preserves its access to the Black Sea because that's something that really makes independent Ukraine viable. And uh, I don't think that's very much in the cards politically to sort of, you know, draw this kind of red line. But, but do you see, I mean, you know, what, what do you think of the idea? And is there anything to be said about also just like restoring freedom of navigation in the Black Sea with Western involvement? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one thing we haven't talked about. I mean, there's been a much more chatter about doing something to uh, lift the Russian uh, blockade. I mean, Kherson, obviously, you know, uh, what happens on land also uh, makes a, a, you know, influences the balance of power, the maritime balance of power. Um, and And so... You know, uh, concentrating on, yes, uh, I think there is a red line that Odessa is mm-hmm. just not explicitly said so. Um, and that, uh, you know, if, first of all, I don't think it's immediately yeah. at risk anytime soon. Uh, that Also, that Herzog is more likely to swing back to Ukrainian control if current trends play out. The effectiveness of the Russian Black Sea Fleet has been seriously diminished, not only because of the losses, because it's now also operating at a farther distance out in the Black Sea, and there's mounting international pressure to bring Ukrainian grain supplies uh, to to market. Uh, I mean, um, I, I, I see that as being a huge pressure point that... Uh, uh, is beginning to be squeezed uh, that will set the Russian position back pretty substantially. I'm afraid that's all we have time for on this sunny Memorial Day in Washington. 
<laughs> it's the, it's the, all the all the optimistic news I can imagine. Uh, from me, Dalvo Rojas, and and me, Giselle Donnelly, and Julia Sosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.